believe in what you're doing as a mission and we believe in you as people as being the right people to do it. So how can we support you to make you as good as possible at what you're aiming to do? Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with founder and CEO, Mary Rose Gunn. Mary Rose launched The Four in 2017. They're a funder with a difference, and they use a sort of venture capital-style approach to funding organizations, providing early-stage seed capital to social entrepreneurs to solve societal and environmental issues. Fascinating conversation. Mary Rose started out her career working in Parliament. She was a researcher. We dive deep into a number of issues. You're really going to enjoy it. Before we do that, though, can I just ask, whatever platform you're on, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, hit follow. Not only will it enable you to get future episodes, but it also really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Mary Rose Gunn, welcome to the Purposely Podcast. Thank you very much indeed for having me. You're the founder and CEO of The Four. What's its mission? What's its purpose? So The Four uh, is about turbocharging exceptional small charities that are transforming lives and society. We support really high potential, high quality charities that are based in the UK. They can be working at anywhere around the world, but they have to be registered here. And it's nonprofits as well. So social enterprises are eligible, but ones that we see potential in to create real transformation, both on people's lives and, you know, broader systems change, societal change. Sorry, we we provide a range of support, which is both funding and non-financial. So we provide access to all sorts of skills and training as well. Yeah, and it established in 2017. So you've been doing it for some time just what the um, charity sector needs, certainly going well so far? Yes, it's it's going really well. So we've, we've been launched as the four since 2017, but we actually piloted the model for four years before that. So we've been doing it now for kind of 10, 10 plus years. And yet it is, I would argue, exactly what the charity sector needs, which is, which is why we do it. So the reason why the four came about and why I founded it is because Having worked in the sector in 2012 for five years as both a funder and a fundraiser, I noticed that there was a huge gap in the market because there was nowhere for small charities or social enterprises to go to get the sort of investment style support that they needed if they had scalable ideas. And, you know, in the UK, but I think it's true the world over really at the moment is we have got so many enormous challenges that we need to address. And we can't expect top-down solutions to to come up with all of the ideas that, you know, it's just not happening and it's not going to work. We need to make sure that people who have got good ideas on the ground, and there are thousands of them out there who've got incredibly clever, innovative, cost-effective, scalable solutions, but we have to make sure that they've got access to funding and skills and support. And at the moment in the UK, that is not really the case. The, the whole funding system isn't really set up to support and invest in the missions of small charities. It's much more there to, to support specific projects, which, which means that as a society, we miss out on a huge amount of innovation 
And there is some really quite disappointing discrimination, un- most of it unintentional, but that happens in the current system because the, the systems are set up for people who've got the best fundraisers, not necessarily who've got the best ideas and the best operations on the ground. Yeah. And the inspiration for the four came from your own personal experience, which I, I love, and you'd, you'd seen the, the issues out there. And really from both sides, both as a funder and as, as, as a funded Tell us a bit about how the the sort of penny drop for you and the inspiration uh, got turned into action, if you like. So uh, I love this question. So basically, yeah, in 2012, I'd been in the sector for five years and I was in this quite unusual position in that I was working for a small family foundation. And so and we had this beautiful house on the embankment in London. We actually didn't really have very much money. But because we were in this beautiful house, people assumed that we were much richer than we were. So I was invited into conversations with some of the huge foundations in the UK and was hearing how they were struggling to support small charities in the way that small charities needed. And then on the other side, I was fundraising to try and get this beautiful house, turn it into a public exhibition space. So I was experiencing the vagaries of the funding system and, and the challenges of it myself, as well as meeting lots of small charities and hearing from them how demoralizing it was, how difficult it was to get hold of, the sort of support they really need. You know, they were saying, oh, what we really need is money to invest in our back office systems or investment in me as a founder so I can give up my day job so I can concentrate on this. But, you know, that's not a project and it's really hard to get that sort of funding out of trust and foundations. And they just didn't have the contacts. They didn't have the the skills and the expertise and the knowledge of fundraising because they were teachers who had, you know, set up an amazing um, charity that was changing the lives of some disadvantaged children in a school or they were care workers, but they consequently, you know, weren't seasoned fundraisers. So they weren't able to kind of navigate the complicated systems that are in place. And so their their great ideas were never getting beyond, you know, the very local even though they were doing something that was very scalable and that had huge potential to create much broader change and much greater impact, you know, they were sort of stuck at this point. And you know, as consequently, society was really missing out on their great ideas and their solutions. So the four was about really trying to address that. Or well, I mean, it started with the pilot, which I did on the side of my day job to try and prove that funding could be given away in a much more impactful way, both for the funder and for the charity, which is unrestricted investment grants, basically, into small organizations. And it's done with a mindset where we're a partner. We're trying to you know, come alongside them and pull up a chair and work with them. So it's about getting to know them, understanding what skills gaps there might be, and then helping them fill them through our networks. And you know, those networks have just got larger and larger over time as we've, we've managed to persuade more people to get involved. But it was from the pilots that were the feedback and the results of which were so successful because the charities that we were supporting were taking a really very small, relatively investment of £30,000 of grant funding on average. Um, actually, for the pilot, the average was less than thirty, but the maximum was £30,000 of grant funding and, and turning it into a truly 
pivotal moment in their development. And they were really, I mean, we have charities that we supported five years ago, six, seven years ago that are national now. And they were, you know, we, for example, Empire Fighting Chance is an amazing young people's leadership and mental health support charity that uses boxing as a way of drawing in kids and young people who have had, you know, really tough times and helping them overcome those challenges. And we funded them when they were moving to their second sort of gave them some money which which pushed them and helped them to to pay to move into their replicate their model in their second venue and they're now in 31 places across the UK amazing and you did find you know some of the real issues with some of the funders or funding process because a lot of those traditional funders want a sort of chicken and egg isn't it because they want to they want a track record they want evidence that an initiative, a charity, a social enterprise is, is having an impact before they'll fund them. And it was actually in that time in the UK, there's very little sort of startup capital, if you like, or that enabling of change makers. Really, like looking back, and you and I met during that period, it was very little capital, very little money heading in that direction. Just tell us a little bit about, so you're doing this on the side of your desk, who are the stakeholders that you had to you know, influence or get over the line to to sort of follow this? Because you did have a day job. Yeah, so the, so the day job for the pilot was setting up the house, the venue that I was working in as a public exhibition space. And along the side of this, yeah, I had to persuade the board of my foundation to, to give this idea a go. But that, to be honest, that wasn't very diff- difficult. They were pretty much behind me because I had managed to raise a whole load of funding to pay for it. So I went to them with a whole load of money saying, can I do this? Here's some cash that will cover it. And, um, you know, not surprisingly, they they said, yeah, why not? Let's give it a go. I mean, we... Where did that funding first come from? Because stuff gets real as soon as funding arrives, right? As soon as there's money on the table. Like, how did you influence the first funders? Was it a pitch deck and you were going around talking to people? No, it was, I happened to hear of a foundation that I I knew of a bit that had more, it was a foundation called the Golden Bottle Foundation that's linked to Seahor and Cohors Bank. And it's an incredibly philanthropic institution. And I also knew them and I knew that they were people who like, it's the oldest private bank in the UK, but perhaps slightly, uh, it comes as a surprise to people that they are incredibly innovative and like to take particularly philanthropic risk. They like to, to risk stuff to do good. In their business dealings, they're very, very, um, they're, they're very secure and stable. But when it comes to doing uh, charitable stuff, they want to try stuff in a way most people don't. And I had heard... Because actually that's really unusual, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, foundations and trusts are so risk averse and it's so counterintuitive because you can't change things unless you take risk. Nobody ever changed anything without trying and failing sometimes. Yeah. Um, but the foundation sector really don't like taking risks. But anyway, these guys aren't like that. And I happened to hear that they'd had quite a good year. So the foundation, the business has had a really good year and the foundation had more money than it was expecting. And I went to see the person who I knew was very influential in the business around what the foundation funded. And I said, look, I've, I've got this idea. There is a massive gap in the market. I would really like to see if we could try to address that gap in the market by doing a different kind of funding model, which is much more, you know, it's like venture capital, basically, it's much more business-like, it's much more in line with the private sector, because I think if we made unrestricted 
grants in charities that were going to, uh, and we asked the charities, you know, what, how would money transform you in some way? How would it enable you to take a massive leap forward in terms of your scaling, your sustainability, your impact on your beneficiaries? That I persuaded this funder that, you know, we could give it a try and we could see that our money would go further, particularly because we were already, I'd already set up a philanthropy network that was bringing skills into the sector. And I said, look, you know, we can not just give them money, but as we get to know them, when we're deciding who we're going to fund, we can connect them with the skills that we understand and learn that they may need. So, you know, if they need some help in doing some financial modeling, if they need some help in writing a business plan, if they need some help in HR and marketing or HR or marketing, you know, we've got business people that we can introduce them to, to say, well, here you go, here's somebody who might be able to help you with that. So the risks were even further mitigated, basically, of the funding. And anyway, this funder was persuaded to give it a go. To begin with, they said, yeah, we'll do it, but we don't want to have to pay any of the costs that will be incurred in trying to find these grants. We'll we'll give the money for the grant, but we don't want to pay for anything else. And I said, that's fine, I can cover that. I persuaded my board that we would cover that, which wasn't huge amounts of money. And eventually, by you know, well, by, by halfway, not even eventually, by kind of halfway through the pilot, when we'd given away, you know, sort of, I don't know, half a million pounds or something, I went back to this funder and said, look, the demand is off the charts from the small charity sector. There are 167,000 charities in the UK and 96% of them are small. But there is nobody else giving this sort of unrestricted investment funding basically in these organizations we are inundated with people who want it the response that we get it's a very competitive process so you know people are we are turning down a lot of people but because we were doing it in a way that was really i hope and i hope it still is is really respectful so the the due diligence process is all about basically helping the charities work out their strategy and you get so the feedback that charities are getting is really valuable. You know, 30% get uh, an ideas testing session, basically, with um, one of our strategic application consultants who are experts in strategy. So even if you don't get any further than having that interview with somebody, they are somebody who sat down with you and spent 45 minutes to an hour chatting through, you know, what are your problems? What are your challenges? How might you solve them? So it's time that is hopefully valuable to you as a charity because, you know, I am a small charity leader. I run a small charity. The four is a small charity. Yeah. And, and one of the things you're very clear on initially was that you wanted, even the charities you said no to, you didn't fund, that they would leave with something that you would add value. Exactly. And that that is it. So we give feedback to everybody. And also people, once they've applied, they are on our mailing list, so they get access to offer all sorts of training which they can sign up for. So that every hopefully the idea is everybody goes away with something, but it was going so well and the results were so positive because the charities that we were funding were achieving really impressive, truly, truly impressive things with such a small amount of money that when I went back to the funder and said, look, this is going so well, the original funder, I'd like to try and scale it and set it up as what came to be known as the four, would you support us to do that in, you know, potentially subsidizing how much it costs? Because, you know, you wanted to come in and just give money for grants. And I'd potentially like to 
give people a really good deal when they start before they are understand the value of this much much more wraparound model and the funder who is i mean they're still one of our biggest supporters and they're fantastic said why would we only subsidize the new people coming in you know why don't you use our fund have our funding unrestricted and it means that you can get your first people on board on a kind of cost-free basis basically so yeah they were and still remain an incredible supporter of what we're trying to do and do you remember that choosing of causes and and you know and rejecting of some was that focused on very heavily focused on individuals and people that you had faith in or they had a fully baked idea like what was the sort of thesis around selection at the beginning and did that change much no the thesis around selection has changed almost not at all which i uh, i think i'm really pleased by i'm really proud of because it shows that we we kind of well it, it's not that complicated basically what we're looking for is two things we're looking for the strength of leadership so we're looking for visionary leaders we're looking for people who can inspire people who've experienced the problems that they're solving people who've got really good ideas but it also you know are they running a good organization or if it's not yet perfect how does it need to be strengthened and can we help that and then the second thing we're looking for is the ability of the grant to have a transformational impact on the charity or the social enterprise not on the beneficiaries the beneficiaries will of course benefit down the line but it is you know how will this funding unlock some kind of positive change in the charity um so you know that might be paying for a CRM system, a computer customer relationship management type system, so they can be much more organized about their data. And if they've got much more organized about their data, then they could maybe, you know, bid for a local authority contract, or it might be, again, funding a salary. So it frees up time for the founder to go and create more, look at the strategy and create more corporate partnerships because they've got businesses queuing up around the corner who wants to come and work with them but at the moment they've got no time because the you know the stuff they've got are all completely focused on delivery it, it can be anything but fundamentally it's an investment in the mission so we are looking to see you know do we believe in the mission do we believe in the people and if we do you know, we want the funding to unlock some kind of you know transformational change in that that will take them somewhere but we're really open to taking risk i mean at the moment we don't take as much risk as we'd like just because we're inundated with demand and there are so many really high quality charities coming to us. We, have, you know, you obviously would fund those first, but we want to, you know, this, you can't, this, I've got one of our charities that we work with who's an amazing charity called 2020 Change set up by someone called Jura Oye. And Jura said, you know, he was in this catch 22 where all the funders he went to were saying, well, we're really worried because, you know, there's massive key man risk because it's just you and you haven't really got a three-year track record yeah. yet. Come back to us when you've got that. So, well, how do I get the three-year track record if you won't give me any money? And yeah. of course, there's key man risk because I can't afford to employ any staff yet. Yeah, and, sounds familiar. And also, you know, it's exactly. And he was also saying, you know, I didn't have a like a full... Well, there are lots of he. I love the fact that he says he sends lots of um, black-led charities to us in the UK because he said that in a lot of the people that he knows who are setting up charities in that community, you know, they don't necessarily have a full board with a lawyer and a banker and a whoever on it to kind of provide the wraparound support that they might need when they're a larger organisation. But you know, you need time to pull all those things together, and time costs money. 
And he said, you know, we understand that that is an investment. And you know, it may be part of the KPIs of the grant period is strengthen the board, add the skills, or you know, do whatever you needed. But it's it's un- it's understood that you don't necessarily need to be perfect before you can get the funding because the funding is about helping you to become that much stronger, more resilient organization. Yeah. And because it's purely philanthropic, even though you're borrowing sort of venture capital approach, like you know, venture philanthropy. The next question I'm going to ask you, which is around failure, because VCs often, you know, they'll throw, you know, money at 10 causes and and one will smash it and the, the other nine will fail. But actually, if you just fund a charity for three years and they deliver impacts and then they close, that's not necessarily a failure. But um, in terms of the ones that you have funded, and just tell us a little bit about the, the permission to fail, if you like, you know, like in terms of how many of them are still going, have you had any failures? What are the have there any been any learnings? We have had some failures, not very many. We've, so we funded in our kind of main portfolio, we funded over 500, but 200 of those were COVID grants, which were sort of don't count as being the having gone through the full review process with monitoring and evaluation and all of that. So we've done over 300 in our, in our main core program. And the failure rate is incredibly low, which again was um, me talking about when I'd r- love to be able to take more risk than we do. But that's about us being able to gather more partners and raise more money. But our own ability to measure our impact is done mainly, which I fully admit is not perfect, but it is a way of measuring impact that doesn't put loads of onus onto the charities themselves to provide us with data. But we do it through looking on a macro level at the income levels of the charities, both in the three years before the grant and in the three years after the grant. And on average, in three years later, they have doubled their income. So our impact and our success is we are used, able to use data to demonstrate that we're, we're pretty confident saying it's, it's pretty strong. We also, on an individual basis with the charities, we check back in with them on an annual um, monitoring and evaluation check-in for the grant period, depending how long the grant is for, because it's up to three years that charities can say they want the funding spread over. The charities decide with in collaboration with the consultants that they're working with you know what what the best structure would be for them for the grant but in that monitoring evaluation we are looking at how well they are achieving the targets that they have set for themselves and in the the due diligence process and their ability to achieve those targets when we need to update the scores because we've just done another round of monitoring and evaluation but their ability to achieve them is is generally between 80 and 90 percent which is phenomenally high compared to the venture capital one in ten success rate we would say we're getting at least eight if not nine out of ten and that was the same in the pilot and it it's it's because when you are looking for visionary social entrepreneurs, it's not that hard to spot the really impressive ones. I mean, it's like I liken it to Dragon's Den. You know, when anyone's watching Dragon's Den, most people can tell who's going to get investment from the dragons and who's not because the dragons know how to ask the right questions. And if you ask the right questions, the right people shine. And, you know, it's clear that somebody knows their stuff. And, you know, if there's something that they can't answer a question on they admit that they can't answer the question in a way that even that gives the dragons confidence and it's exactly the same when we are looking for 
people to invest in. And it's also the, you know, the consultants don't make the decisions. We have a very accountable, transparent process where they put forward the charities to um, panels and the people sitting on the panels making the decisions about who actually, so the equivalent of the dragons are people who we funded before. So the leaders of the charities in our portfolio and people who come from our corporate partners and our funder who come from the money side of things, but everybody is trained in making decisions based on the transformational impact of the grant and the strength of the leadership of the organization. So they're asking questions that are about you know, how is this funding going to transform? You know, what's the strategy? What's the risk profile? Does it make sense? But consequently, we are really, I mean, I'm almost embarrassed by how few failures we have. There definitely have been some and we have learned from them. So for example, we had a fantastic charity that we supported that was working with survivors of sexual abuse. And the founder, there was huge key man risk with it, and it ended up not surviving. And one of the key findings from that was that we hadn't, we added in more checks because the relationship with this charity, I think it's fair to say the relationship between the board and the chief exec wasn't as strong as we had thought it was. And consequently, when things got tricky, there wasn't as much support within the organization for the operations and delivery and the staff as we had hoped that there would be. So we have now, you know, we've sort of tweaked our due diligence process to try and make sure that there's more support and more questions are asked around that. But also we've really trained our consultants to make sure that I mean, it's the first question when I, no, not the word, but one of the first questions when I meet the leaders of our foundations and, oh, sorry, of our charity, our portfolio charities is asking us, you know, it's things like, do you take your holiday burnout in small charity leaders? Is it an all time high at the moment? Yeah. And it is vital that people are feeling like they need to look after themselves because, I mean, particularly in what we're doing, there are a lot of people who we're supporting, who have got, you know, they're experts by experience. And if you are then dedicating your life to something that you've, to, to helping other people who've experienced similar trauma or, or challenges that you've experienced, that, you know, that understandably, obviously is going to take a toll on your mental health, on your physical health, and making sure that our founders look after themselves. You know, that is something that we often put into the grant targets is, you know, it's making sure that there is enough support for the leadership that they are able to look after themselves. Have they got mentors? You know, those sorts of questions are things that we're asking. So it's about basically caring about not just we're not you know we're not shopping. We're not saying right. Well, how many children are going to learn to have read better by the end of this grant? We're saying. We love that you're working with families and one of the outcomes is that there's better improved literacy amongst the children of the families you're working with. But, you know, we believe in what you're doing as a mission and we believe in you as people as being the right people to do it. So how can we support you to make you as good as possible at what you're aiming to do? Yeah. And that is, you know, that's not hounding them because they haven't, you know, they said they'd help 100 kids and they've only helped 97. That is about... You know, looking after people in the round. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was the very transactional nature of a lot of funding, funding agreements, say that heading numbers, irrespective of the, the change it made to people's life. I mean, the, the sort of 
a wonderful thing about what you've done is if you've also been setting up your own and running your own and scaling your own social enterprise slash charity <laughs> on the yeah. job. So you've been, you've been sort of yeah. walking alongside your portfolio, if you like, those charities and learning on the job. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, while we did the pilot, I was essentially yeah, setting up a church social enterprise, completely understanding the, the challenges that, and I mean, I see myself as exactly, I mean, I am a peer of all of the people we're supporting. And I am so thrilled that some of them are way more successful than we are. You know, they are much, some of the charities we've supported are much bigger than we are now. And then setting up the four is exactly the same with exactly the same challenges all over again. And it is one of the, I love talking to the leaders of our portfolio charities. One of the reasons I love talking to them is I'm so inspired by them and I learn the most enormous. I mean, I steal all of their ideas. I was talking to someone the other day and was asking about, you know, how do you create in the post-COVID world, creating atmosphere and culture in the office that's really positive, but that's also flexible and, you know, what everyone wants. And one of the leaders had some amazing ideas. I was like scribbling them down. Yeah, right, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, no, how do that? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it is. We are in exactly the same boat. I mean, our fundraising has probably got an extra naught on the end of a lot of the people that we're supporting, but it, you know, otherwise, it's we're we're in exactly the same situation. So yeah, we are. I mean, I'm, I am a fundraiser essentially. So uh, well, that's what I've ended up becoming. So I. I mean, we are, if, if what we are doing is not supportive and helpful of small charities that are trying to fundraise, then we are doing it wrong. So we are constantly on a mission to try and improve all of our, our activities and our, our um, processes to, to make them as helpful and as supportive as possible. But of course, we, you know, the, we are always going to have to turn people down. So, you know, that doesn't mean we can't support everybody. On a personal level, what has been the hardest part of this for you? So you've, you almost you sort of talk about almost the the admission. I'm a, I'm a fundraiser. That's effectively what I am. But you've got there's a lot of things that you guys do for a very small organisation. What have you learned on a personal level? That's a really difficult question because so much and <laughs> still gets so much wrong. I think that you have to be tough and try not to take things too personally. I think you know managing people and teams is is really really hard. And if you take things too personally and blame yourself too much for everything, then, you know, you're never going to be able to succeed. You have to learn to, to sort of put the, put the things that aren't so successful to bed and, and learn from them, but then move on. And I think the most important thing probably is that I have to really stay when, when things, when things are really hardest is when I find myself disconnected from what we are doing on the ground and because what we are doing on the ground is just I mean, talking to the people that run the charities that we support is the absolute best bit of my job and making sure that I don't lose connection with that because sometimes you know when you're so busy going off trying to fundraise and thinking about strategy and and doing all of that you know that feels like the sort of it, you know, for me, it's such a pleasure. It feels like, well, I shouldn't prioritize that because I enjoy it too much and I should be doing the hard, you know, the bits that are harder. But actually, I must prioritize that and always staying connected with the work on the ground. I think for everybody running a small charity or a social enterprise is, is vital because actually that's what gives you the energy to do all of the other things. So not, I have to not think of it as being, 
you know, the luxury is having chats with the the founders of um, portfolio charities. Actually, it is it's kind of the the lifeblood of everything that we do because you know those are the conversations that make me a better person to go out there and and encourage other people to support and come in alongside us and work with us on what we're doing because I can tell their stories when I have much closer um, contact with them. Yeah, and you and I met. We met through um, a sort of peak body education session it was the association for charitable foundations and and you had what it looked like quite a calm existence you know you were running the bulldog trust there's as you know there was an element of fundraising to it but you've really picked yourself up you've gone on a adrenaline rush if you if you know what i mean like you've got a it's an entrepreneurial journey that you've been on and it's not been a straight line is it we'll we'll dive into how the challenges in a bit more detail but did you have this gnawing feeling that you wanted to make life difficult for yourself, Mary Rose? Or <laughs> what was the <laughs> what was the thinking? I think I get I get bored, so I like to challenge myself. I think, and and I just I mean I've I've been incredibly lucky in life. I've had some tricky bits as well, but I've been incredibly lucky, and I feel like I think I'm quite driven by the idea that. I'd like to use what luck I've had in terms of, you know, I was very lucky, had a very good education. I come from a really strong family. Um, I've had a lot of support and I'd like to kind of use what I've been given to try and make the world a little bit of a better place. And the, yeah, how, how I can do that is at the moment, my opportunity to have the greatest impact, I think, is is you know trying to I mean it's not, it's not a small mission but try and change the funding system basically and make it work better. Yeah. I mean the people that run the portfolio charities that we support they are the good samaritans of life. You know they are the people who have seen problems and they have stopped and said, "You know what? I'm not going to walk on by and ignore this. I'm going to try and do something about it." And I feel very strongly that as a society we should make sure that those people have got whatever support they need to succeed because they are the most valuable members of society that we could possibly have. Where did that come from? So you, like you said, strong education, stable family, loving family. You went on to Oxford University, you know, did a degree and then a further education. Where did that desire come from to make a difference and sort of head towards purpose is there something or someone or is it i genuinely don't know i think i'm not sure that's a really interesting question i think it i mean i've got family that is you know it's really supportive and but the, yeah there's not i mean yeah i don't know just uh i think i just feel like what's the point in being here to get very philosophical, you know, what is the point in being here if we don't try and improve things for the next people, the next generation? I think the truth is you get more back than you give, like the good feelings you get or have. I mean, fundamentally, it's quite selfish, really. It makes me feel good to do good things that are helping people. So, I mean, that's... um, uh, I don't do this because it makes me feel horrible. No, I do it because it makes me feel good. So, yeah. so yeah. And we touched on, or I touched on, the some of the difficulties. And you talked about being a fundraiser. I'm guessing that COVID was certainly a challenge along the way. 
in terms of how you'd mapped out the organization. Did, did you have like a in-depth business plan and it sort of mapped out continual growth with secure funding and, and it's turned, it's sort of the path has been more windy than that. Tell us a bit about the challenges. I never had an, well, I think I did at one point have a really in-depth business plan, but I then had some very, very wise advice from various different people who are very experienced business people who said, basically, there's absolutely no point in keeping an in-depth business plan because you change it all the time and it changes so fast. And the amount of time you spend writing it is, you know, kind of three times probably the length of time it takes before it needs to be changed. So I had an idea and I had a plan and I had a vision. And in COVID, yes, that did change because we pivoted quickly to do something Um, that was much more reactive because of the pandemic circumstances, which actually was, went very well. And we were, we were thrilled with, with the results of it. But then we went back to the original plan, which is basically to offer this type of support to as many exceptional small charities that we can. And I mean, a lot of people have challenged and do continue to challenge us on, you know, why don't you just kind of dig deep and you know bed down with the really good ones that you find and keep on funding them rather than continuing to to fund new ones and my response to that and why our, our mission hasn't really changed if anything i've just sort of really strengthened my belief in the fact that we don't want to do that we do want to try and cast our net as wide as possible and support as many different small charities as we can is because there is nobody else out there doing this. And we talk to a lot of people who want to do that follow-on funding. They want to you know, bed down with specific charities or specific causes. And that's fantastic. And we really encourage them to do that. But if we don't do what we do, they don't have somewhere to come to to find really good causes and really good people that are based in Scotland or in Cornwall or in a really deprived part of Rotherham. You know, they don't get to meet those really inspiring visionary leaders from the grassroots if we haven't found them first. So I see our role as being a really vital one, which is basically finding those visionary leaders and then being an opportunity for people who want to do more in-depth funding and longer-term funding and of a greater scale to being the person that can make those introductions. And, you know, for me, I hope in five years' time, and maybe it's even happened, I don't know, that would be really fantastic if someone were to say this has happened, you know, we'll have some amazing young person who won't be that young anymore, but who, you know, left school quite early, set up a charity, or a social enterprise, did something amazing with it, happened to be funded by us, through us, meets some people, ends up working in a hedge fund despite the fact they left school really young, um, but they're incredibly bright and they just didn't have the opportunities, end up you know, leaving their charity, setting it up for success, going and working for a hedge fund, and then they come back as a donor. That will be really fantastic for yeah. me. Then we'll know we've, we've really made it. Just focusing a bit on money plus the support, like, and the two things, could it just be money or actually you found the support that you offer, you know, the, yeah. the charity leaders, is that a crucial part of it? It is a crucial part of it. The non-financial stuff is, we have some so research from our portfolios where we went back and talked to them about it. And 60% of them say that the non-financial support is as valuable as the money. So they are, I mean, that's why we offer it is because 
small charities, they're crying out for not just unrestricted funding, but also access to expertise. You, know, you have to, running a small charity, you have to be good at everything. You have to be good at delivery. You have to be good at writing spreadsheets. You have to be good at fundraising. And if you can have people help you in areas, because nobody is able to be strong in all of those areas, and you've got to be good at marketing, you've got to be good at communications. If you can have people who can come and help you in those areas and, and guide you and advise you, it makes the most enormous difference. You talked about being unique at the start. I'm guessing someone's copied you. There must be others out there who've been inspired by your journey. I wish, to be honest. I mean, when we first started, I kept every meeting I'd go to, I'd think, oh, this is going to be the meeting when someone says, oh, someone's doing this already. Well, you know, you're, you're just copying someone else. And finally, after about five years, I finally thought, okay, no, there isn't anyone out there. And then I thought, but it'll be okay because someone will come along and copy us soon. And then we won't be the only ones. And it still hasn't happened as far as I'm aware. There are, I mean, there are some amazing foundations that are very small that are doing a similar sort of investment, but they, to us, but they're doing it on a very local, you know, they're, they're doing it through the one or two charities they find. They are not taking, like we do, applications from across the country. So, I wish there were more people doing what we're doing because all of the feedback that we get is that people are desperate for this sort of support. Charities out there and now more than ever, everyone I think was very excited that COVID made some fundamental shifts happen in the grant making sector. And a lot of grant makers, they really opened up their processes. They were much more open to thinking about things a bit differently, giving unrestricted funding and all sorts. But what we are hearing from the portfolio charities on the ground is that actually really upsettingly is that a lot of trust and foundations have gone back to their old ways. They've gone back to their really quite strict application processes, which are, you know, they suit people who know how to fundraise and have got experience, but people who are new to this or who come from a different sector or a different background, they, you know, they really, really struggle with how to, in 150 characters, describe the impact that you're having on the stakeholder beneficiaries or whatever, you know, technical language the questions may yeah. be asked in. You have real passion for this. It's, it's very evident and it, and it comes out in, in the way you talk. But as you grow your organization, so I know you're, in the, you're hiring at the moment, aren't you? But as you grow and your sort of leadership journey, tell us a bit about that and how you kind of install the same, the passion you have for this and, and others. What's your learnings been on that? What's the process been for becoming a leader or love to know about that? Uh, I think there hasn't really been a process to it. And maybe there should be, you know, it's maybe that's something I should think about actually more. It's more, I just, I mean, I, I love what we do. I love, it is just the most amazing feeling to be able to help people who are changing people's lives. And we are in a really very privileged position because we are learning about gaining an understanding of some of the greatest challenges that we are facing as a society, you know, be it inequality, be it racial injustice, be it ill health and or climate change. We are experiencing these through an incredibly positive lens, which is we are um, learning about them and understanding them through people who know how to change things 
and who how to make things know how to make things better. And that is just it's an honor to be able to spend time with these people and be able to play a very small part in helping them do more of what they're doing. And so I think from a leadership perspective, it's about just, you know, trying to spread the message and encourage people to understand that we are really lucky. And therefore, you know, everything kind of flows from that. I mean, that's not really an answer to your question, but but I'm not sure that I've got anything better, really. How comfortable, because you talk about the name of the of your organization is about bringing visionary and inspirational leaders to the fore. How comfortable are you at the fore? Like, how comfortable are you as a leader? Are you innately confident being in the role of leadership or is it something that you've had to sort of get comfortable with or just get used to? I think it happened very organically. So I started, when I started running the foundation, there was no startup, there basically were no startup 16, 17 years ago. So then as I built it and brought in people to work for me, I mean, basically my whole sort of philosophy was I would do a job. Then when I would get a bit bored of doing that job, I would raise enough money so I could pay in whatever way it was, either by, you know, setting up an earned income stream or, or by fundraising for it. I'd raise enough money so I could pay someone to come and do my job so I could go on and do the next job. So I think consequently, it never, you know, leadership wasn't something I thought, oh, do I want it or do I not want it? It just happened organically. And I feel very privileged to be able to lead an organization like this. I really enjoy it. I love working with people. There are really, and there have been some really, really difficult times when it has been something that has almost crushed me, I think, at times. But generally, it is the most, I mean, who wouldn't want my job? Basically, I'm so lucky. So yeah, again, I'm, I, that doesn't really answer your question, but maybe it does a bit. But yeah, I, I think just inspiring people by, by enjoying what you do is maybe my philosophy. Yeah. And do you look to mentors? Like, do you, where do you get your inspiration from? I mean, it's clear that you get your inspiration, or a lot of it, from your portfolio and the charities that you've supported. But outside of that, like, where do you get your inspiration from? From, uh, I think, both learning and inspiration. I'm incredibly lucky. I've got a really strong board, and I have got an amazing array of experience and expertise in the board. And then I have, I have a mentor who is fantastic. Um, I would highly recommend everyone must have a mentor. And I'm really lucky because what we're doing is so cool. A lot of people want to come and talk to us. So I am forever being inspired by people who are doing different things in different worlds. And that's also a really great opportunity to learn and to, you know, when, when you are in the position that I'm in and that I'm talking to business people, I'm talking to charity sector people, I'm talking to public sector people, you know, a whole array a lot of the time, it's a great chance to have a greater understanding of how different places work and different industries work and then try and obviously bring in the, the things that seem to be the best practice into what we're doing and, and sort of take that forward where we can. Yeah. And you talked about self-care. So what does um, what does Mary Rose do when she's not, because I imagine it's not like work. Like it's you probably don't get the Sunday night blues. So what do you, what do you do though to yeah. switch off and and kind of remove yourself and just get yourself um, sort of calmed? I do love running, and I have a dog, and I sing. 
I'm not sure if I should admit that. But, but why won't uh, make you think <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah, please don't. Uh, so no, I um, I'm in a choir. It's good for the soul. Something completely different to what you yeah. do as a day job. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, as we look towards wrapping up, just outline what you hope the or what you think the future will be for the organisation for the four. I really, really hope, and I'm kind of giving it my all to try and make happen, that we will be in a situation in the next five years where we are able to support a considerable number more charities than we are at the moment. I mean, our ambition is to support a thousand more exceptional small charities and social enterprises. And if we are able to do that, we will then be in a position where we are really moving the needle. So there's a NCVO Almanac, which is a, a civil society data collection thing that happens in the UK. And in the last 20 years, it shows that the income to small charities has gone down on a just it's on a downward trajectory over the last 20 years so the larger charities are getting all of the money basically more and more and more it used to be small charities 20 years ago got about 30 percent of the total sector income it's now down to 20 percent, and it's going down and for me success is about if that line changes direction because that will mean that as a society not just trusts and foundations, but generally people are really changing the narrative about who it is who can solve problems. And it will show that people are investing in their own communities, investing in local solutions, and we will have a different type of sector, basically. We won't be expecting the big top-down solutions to to change everything. We will be, as a society, understanding that actually we need to help people to have agency to to change things from the bottom up. So that's where I'd like us to be, is with that line moving upwards that has been going steadily down. Fantastic. Mary Rose Gunn, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 